This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli podcast. Podcast number 166 here, sponsored by Bet Rivers. It's Thursday, February 29th. What does that mean? It means it's a leap day. So everybody go out there and leap. It's a leap day. I, I don't quite understand it. I know there's some kind of uh, s- sociological significance to, to, to leap day, uh, but I, I don't know what it is, nor do I care. Uh, so it, we'll, we'll just do it on, on it's leap day here. And coming up is an interview with, uh, with baseball great uh, Tom Glavin. Yes, we get the Hall of Famers to come on the Mike Vestelli show. Right, Tom Glavin. All right, maybe he's not the most popular guy in Philadelphia because he kicked the Phillies' ass for a lot of years, except for two times, 1993. And then, if you remember, 2007 with the Mets melting away the division with the Phillies, that team that was on to come, that they wound up losing to the Colorado Rockies. But you knew something great was on deck for that group of Philly players and uh, Tom Glavin pitched the last game of the year against the Phillies. I don't know if I want to bring that up though. We probably will, uh, but he's coming up in a little bit. So let's start out the Mike Masnelli podcast today on a Thursday with what we call the current. Uh, this is the lull. Let's face it. It's the lull right now. It's like a calm before the storm. Playoffs of the NBA are coming up. Uh, NHL players are coming up. Uh, it's uh, the NFL offseason. And the most exciting thing is the combine. And, of course, you got Philly spring training, which is where we'll start today. And I was watching him yesterday. The game was on television yesterday against the Braves, ironically enough. And uh, a couple things stood out. Alec Bohm stood out. Um, I'm hoping he has a big year uh, hitting more home runs. That's what I want him to do. He's long enough to be able to get more pop. And he, to me, needs to be a 25 to 30 home run guy from the third base spot. And yesterday, he had a home run, a double versus the Braves. And the other highlight was Sir Anthony Dominguez, who's been really good. In spring training. Now, uh, that's a good sign, but as always, you, you got to project because at the end of the season, he, he wears out somewhat. Uh, so hopefully he can carry that through an entire season. So it's not as much as what he's doing now uh, that uh, impresses me as whether he's going to be a consistent, reliable guy for an entire season. Now, yesterday, interestingly enough, I got to give the Phillies credit. They threw a kid a bone yesterday. The starting pitcher in yesterday's game for the Phillies was the right-hander named Tyler Phillips. He is a product of Bishop Eustis High. All these Eustis guys are are popping up all over the place. He's from Lumberton, New Jersey. That's a little rural down there, Lumberton. Uh, But he went to Eustis, and he's had an interesting story because he had uh, an injury that, that forced him to miss baseball for a year. He's a 26-year-old right-hander. He pitched in Reading last year, and the Phillies throw him out there to be the starting pitcher. He had his uh, his girlfriend there, his kid. Uh, I know his family was all excited. He pitched in spring training. Hopefully, they were there as well. Here's the good news for Tyler Phillips. He threw 20 of his 23 pitches for strikes. 
The bad news is they were fairly hittable strikes. He gave up three hits, two runs, and he gave up a monster home run. Uh, so, uh, and afterwards, he was interviewed uh, by the broadcasting crew. He seems like a nice enough kid. He seems like he's kind of scared to death and intimidated. But it's a big thrill, man. He starts a game for his, and he was a monster Phillies fan. He was talking about who his favorite players were uh, and how his dad had season tickets and was sitting in right field. And he would try to go as many games as he could with his dad. And um, uh, he, he his favorite player was J-Roll and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so it was a really nice story for, for Tyler Phillips. Um, now, there is a story now with uh, – I'm going to get to a big Philly story in a second. So hold, hold on to your, your, your britches here. Um, the, the uniforms still are now a major concern. And uh, Tony Clark, the head of the Major League Baseball Player Association, finally had to address it. And what he said yesterday is that work is being done to mitigate the players' concerns. All right, now the players' concerns are uh, – there's a multitude of them. Um, the uniforms are called Nike Vapor Premier. They're supposed to be a dry wicking uh, shirt. I've, I've got many dry wicking uh, Nike shirts in, in my collection. So this is uniform is an extension of that where it's supposed to wick off moisture better. It's a lot lighter. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much lighter a baseball uniform could be or whether that really is any consideration at all. But that's the uh, the idea behind it. And so it's designed by Nike and it's manufactured by Fanatics. Um, <laughs> The players seem to have a problem with the following. Jersey size, uh, waist, inseam, length, and thigh fit. Uh, other than that, the uniforms are perfect. Uh, they, they also know, I don't know if the players care that their, their name on the back is a little smaller. I think fans care about that more than the players. But uh, anyway, this was a problem that was anticipated, uh, as far as I, I can read into it, many months ago by the Phillies equipment people where they were talking to, to some players and they're saying, you know, this, this uniform thing is going to be a big thing for the players. In, in, in fact, that one, uni, uh, one clubhouse guy said, it's going to be an S show. Now, uh, we're the two ways of looking at it. You know, all of this damn spoiled players, they got to have the perfect uniform. Well, listen, it matters. You got to feel comfortable in a uniform. You know, if you're thinking about how you, you, it's a bad fit, with your uniform, and it takes that much away from your focus. And baseball is a game of focus. You don't want to feel uncomfortable. So I don't know what they're going to do. Are they have to remake the uniforms? They've got all these uniforms made already, like millions of dollars. What are they going to do, give you a completely different uniform? I don't know. Maybe they will do that. The Player Association will, will say, yes, let's do that. Baseball will go, what the hell? I'm not going to spend more millions of dollars because these bratty players. I don't know what's going to happen. But it's, it's amazing that this thing is still an issue as we're now several weeks into spring training uh, about the uniforms. All right, let's get to the real big story. Uh, and this will uh, really solicit a bigger discussion. This is a classic sports radio talk topic. The Phillies announced today that they are discontinuing Dollar Dog Night. Now, listen, I, ne I never understood Dollar Dog Night. I never understood why that was such a lure for people to come to the ballpark that they could buy 10 hot dogs to stuff their fat faces with just because it's a dollar. But let's face it, people like the Dollar Dog Night. It was kind of getting out of hand in many different ways. Number one, it's a it was costing the, the Phillies uh, and, and Hatfield a lot of money, right? They, they weren't making a profit on, on a dollar dog. 
Second of all, the lines were outrageous. Now, I fostered a plan. I actually sent it to Dave Buck, vice president of the Phillies, where I said, you do it like, uh, like a drug dealer would do it on the corner. Like, if you ever watched The Wire, you give them the money, somebody gets the dog, and next person gives it to you, right? Like, like there should have been uh, uh, a system where uh, here's the money, you give them a dollar, you got to bring cash. That's the thing. And I know they don't want to uh, uh, have cash problems anymore, so that's why they've eliminated all, most of the cash things. But in this particular, if you're going to have a dollar dog night, you got to accommodate dollar dog night. So you tell the people, okay, dollar dog night, bring bills. It's like you're going to a strip club. Bring a lot of ones. Come to the park with a lot of ones. You give somebody $5. The next guy goes, oh, here's five dogs. Boom. And the line keeps moving. To me, that was my solution. I don't know. It seems brilliant. I have these brilliant ideas uh, every once in a while. Like the last brilliant idea I sent to the NBA was the dunk contest where you have high school versus college versus pro. It's brilliant. And now the dollar dog. Now it's, a brilliant, it's a foolproof system. Somebody takes the money, somebody gives you a hot dog, you get the hell out. But they didn't do that, so there's all kinds of line problems, and people are missing the game because they're in line for a freaking dollar hot dog. So they've eliminated, and then here's the third consideration. Drunk fans or dissatisfied fans for that particular game are hauling hot dogs like missiles onto the field. People can't, you know, you can't legislate idiocy. So people were going to do that. So you got to punish now the whole fan base. No more dollar dog night. They are keeping it in a some semblance of form. If you buy a hot dog, you get the next one for free at full price. So here's what most people who do that, you see it in the grocery store all the time. Buy one, get one free. Here's the classic example. Thomas English muffins. They always have buy one, get one free Thomas English muffins. But they hike the price up for the one. So one pack of Thomas English muffins has been hiked up to six fifty, and you get the other one for free, basically to break it even. So that's what they're doing here. I guarantee you they'll raise the hot dog price to like $6, and then you get the second one for free, right? It's, it's classic. In either way, it's a defeat for the poor fan who seems to worship Dollar Dog Night. So let's produce uh, get producer Darren in here on the, on the Dollar Dog Night. Darren? Uh, how are you feeling about the Dollar Dog Night discontinuation? It is my understanding, by the way, that there that it will remain five dollars oh. a hot dog, which is the current price. Oh, that's nice. Now. Um, it is a big, it's a big college night. You know, uh, it's always a bunch of drunk college kids. I, I've been to those. I don't. I'm not a big. I'll eat one normally. I'm not a big hot dog guy at games. Once in a while, I'm craving one. I don't understand. I got a friend who's like half my size, who will eat like 12 to 13 of them. Just because they think they're getting a bargain. <laughs> no way, he must have this a is the only thing. Oh, they think they're getting a bargain. Yeah, we got to take guess. advantage of it. I need to get 10 in me. That's why college kids go down, because they got the two nickels. They got a dollar three eighty in their pocket, and that's all they can afford. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, sorry. Right, now, let's get to the second part of this. What is wrong with my brilliant yeah. system to sell hot dogs? It's an assembly line plan, basically, and it should move quicker. You could also put a limit, like five at a time or ten, whatever you want to do it, to help it you know, move quicker as well with that. But I like that it's just boom, boom, boom. Well, you don't line, even need moving. a limit in this system. Your guy gives you a $10 bill. You, get, you, you gather up 10 hot dogs from a big tub of hot dogs you got. You get, you get them on his way. Yeah, Just bring dollars to the damn would, ballpark. 
Yeah, and you're right though. They, I think they do have that that cashless. They have policy a cashless policy. So on this night, suspend the yeah. cashless policy and just tell them it's a strip club. I like it. In fact, I kind of want a hot dog right now. Talking about it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> a little mustard. Right, so we've Some taken onions. care of the two most important issues. <laughs> the uniforms yeah. don't fit right on the crotch. And the dollar dog night discontinued. This is what's going on in baseball right now. You see, we're in a desperate spot. We're in limbo here at this time of the year for sports. All right, let's move on to your Philadelphia 76ers, who have now uh, plummeted to sixth place, and they are 2.02 ahead of the Pacers for dropping into the seventh spot and into the play-in tournament. Now, I don't know if I ever fashioned a day uh, this modern age with the Sixers, that they would actually be in a play-in tournament. Uh, that is a regression beyond belief, and obviously it's because Embiid's no longer playing, and they're not good enough to compensate for the loss of their star players, which is really depressing to me because you're supposed to be able, if you're a good team, you're supposed to be able to weather some kind of a storm, and they can't, and they need the guy back in the lineup, which tells me a lot about their chances to actually do something in the playoffs. So let's Let's look at where they are. If they survive, if they get into the play-in and they survive and get the seventh seed, right now they would play the Cavs in the first round or the Knicks. Now, I'm going to be honest here because that, like, it was the day when you say, I'll take that series any day. I don't believe the Sixers, even with Embiid coming back, because I can't guarantee that he's going to be back in 100% capacity, can beat the Cavs or Knicks in a seven-game series. And people say, well, Mike, they beat the Cavs twice in a row. Yeah, they did in the regular season, and one was without Donovan Mitchell. So, uh, again, when people look at this, they go, well, they beat the Cavs. This is a seven-game series. You have to win four games in a series, and you're going to have to win it without home court advantage if you're coming from the rear. So, uh, again, I, I am not <laughs> I am not optimistic that – that they won't be in the play-in tournament, frankly. Here's the next games up. Hornets. All right, that's a win. I think they'll win that game against the lousy Hornets. The Mavericks. Mm. The Nets win. So I got win, loss, win. The Grizzlies win. 500 so far, right? They win two of the next four. And then the Pelicans. Oh, the Pelicans. Uh, then at the Knicks and at the Knicks in a quirky schedule where they have to play the Knicks twice at the Garden on a Thursday and Saturday and then at the Bucks, Loss, 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 loss. Four losses. That's two and six in my book. That plummets them further down. That assures them that it will be in seventh place by the next time we talk after these games. All right. That's, that's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe something's different. They shake up the world. They win a few of those games. They avoid the play-in. But right now, I am not feeling that they will avoid the play-in tournament. And I, I can't believe that. I, it's like at the start of the season, if you would have told me the Sixers are going to be in the play-in tournament with all the hogs of the world way down in that, in that lower rung, I would say you're crazy. But that's the way it looks like right now. Darren, your thoughts? Yeah, they, the Sixers had that quirky schedule in the beginning of the year where they played the Knicks in Philly back-to-back. Uh, so I guess this is – I don't know if the NBA is doing this now. In fact, you and I are at one of those games. So I don't know if that's kind of a makeup 
I've never seen that. Yeah, it's before, it's kind of weird. Uh, but you know, listen, things aren't looking up, and and we really don't have. You know, MB was at the game the other night. Brought his kid, and it's all cute and everything, but um, he didn't really sit on the with the be- on the bench with the team that night, did he? I don't know, man. I, to me, if you're hurt and you can walk around with your kid and take accolades from people, sit on the bench with your mates. Uh, all right, let's move on here. Let's talk about the Eagles. Again, there's nothing going on except. That Roseman Sirianni spoke the other day, and you know, we we watched it. We didn't really have a reaction to it, but I thought about it over the uh, last couple of days. And Roseman kind of threw the coach under the bus when he started talking about the younger players. And one player in particular was discussed. It was Nolan Smith. And Roseman has a really interesting way of covering his ass. Uh, he drafted Nolan Smith, and he kind of like laid Sirianni out with this overall general concept that sometimes we got to trust the younger players to play. And I think he was making a, a pointed accusation to Sirianni for not playing Nolan Smith. How dare you not play my draft pick? You're making me look bad. And that's what I think that was all about. I, I don't, I don't see the Sirianni thing going well <laughs> in any event. Uh, okay. What's going on now is the NFL combine. I, I tuned in a little bit last night. There was really nothing going on last night, except cameras on the players coming in. I'm strangely attracted to the NFL Combine on the NFL Network. Um, And I'm wondering, um, do you watch it, Darren? Uh, I will just check in, uh, but I I can't believe you you like watching. I think it's the most worthless. Like, if I was a head coach or a general manager, the only use I have for the Combine is to be able to sit down with the player and get to know them as a person. I, give, give me a paper, a data sheet at the end of it with all their measurables. I don't care. I'm watching game tape, and I want to sit down with them and find out what kind of a person they are and see, see how dead, dedicated I feel oh, they listen are to you, to Mr. Football. football. Oh, football. Mr. Serious Football Guy. Hey, listen, I look at the combine. I, li- I like skills competitions for professional leagues. So I look at the combine as it's kind of a skill competition. Right, the three I, I want to see certain things from certain guys. I especially like the 40-yard dash. I especially like when linemen record really good times in the 40 yard dash, not necessarily the skill players. Cause I know what they're going to run. They're going to be you know, the, the best, highest ranked players going to run the best. I want to see the linemen, the offensive linemen, defensive linemen, how well they run the 40 yard dash. I like that part. And I like I like watching receivers hands on that quick drill where they have to catch, keep going, not throw it down. I, that's a good measurement of hands. The best guy I ever saw in the last five years at the NFL Combine was C.D. Lamb. The ball just sucked right into his hand. He was, like, ultra impressive. I go, that dude is going to be a player in this league. And that's why I was really sorry when they didn't take him. They wound up taking Hurts. So it makes me look silly. But they could have they could have traded that second-round pick with their pick and gotten C.D. Lamb. Instead, they passed over Justin Jefferson and, you know, the rest. Uh, but I like it. Uh, here's what I don't like, and I don't care about it. I'm sick of it, and I don't know what the appeal of it is. The Rich Eisen 40-yard dash. I mean, c- come on. Seriously? I knew you were going to say that. Come I knew it. on. What are we doing here? Do I give a flying F about Rich Eisen running a 40-yard dash in a suit with his arms up like this? I can tell that that's a guy that's never played well, a sport in his life. I don't want now. to see him run a 40-yard dash. He's a very successful commentator. I get it. I don't want to see the 40-yard dash. 
Yeah, I, somehow they make proceeds out of well, it. Well, they, they did that after a while. But, uh, because, I know what you're And saying. that's a good thing about it. Yeah. But they hadn't done that for a really long time, and I just don't want to see it anymore. I'm not interested. You're right. It was just a gimmick for care. a long time. Yeah. All right. Let's go uh, into this other major NFL story where the Players Association actually graded organizations as far as their overall amenities in, in the organization. So um, it's a team report card that measured treatment of families, food cafeteria, nutritionist dietitian, locker room, training room, training staff, weight room. And they gave grades for every organization in the NFL. The Eagles came out really well. They came out with the fourth highest grade in the NFL. Let's get to their grades. Okay, so... For uh, the treatment of families, oh, they, they didn't come out of the gate very well because they got a C for that. C, C for treating families, all right? The next one, they got that an surprised A me. with. Uh, and the A, the A is the part where they had the food and cafeteria. So the next one was nutrition and dietitian. They, they've always had kind of good acclaim for that. Uh, so they got, uh, let's see, they got a B on that. Um, all right, let's move on. So the third category was the locker room. Locker room, they got a B minus for the locker room. I don't know what's wrong with the locker room, but they got they got a B minus for that. I think they want it renovated. I, I thought it was lower than B that, minus actually, here. Because, uh, that's one of their. They main got a B plus for the uh, training room, for the training staff. They got a B. Uh, no, wait a minute. They got a A minus. They got an A minus for the training staff, and then finally uh, for the weight room, they got an A minus. So it all comes out to be pretty good. They had the fourth best organization uh, according to NFLPA and their, uh, their their facilities and their accommodations. See what they gave the coach, the head coach. No. He's great. They gave a. the head coach an A. <laughs> Sirianni really? got an A. Huh. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, so they got team travel was a C. That was nineteenth. Uh, head coach A sixth. O- ownership interesting A <laughs> seventh. <laughs> All right, listen, man. I, I you know I just look at it as a cynical. Uh, sports analyst and uh, you know the NFLPA, the players are really the ones giving the grades. Uh, I I don't know how they got the grade with the head coach. I don't know what the who they asked for that. Yeah, they didn't like their travel setup either. The players are feeling like they're all cramped in the back of the plane while the staff's up in first uh, class. <laughs> team travel C, yeah, nineteenth. Uh, LL. Oh, there you go, Jeffrey. Spend some of those monies. Not number one. Number one on the list, Mike, Miami Dolphins. Can you guess who number the last in the was? league? Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. No. No. Uh, the Washington, oh, Washington whatever they The Commanders there got the worst. Go. Who was second worst? The... I see a lot of F's for the Chargers. Uh, yeah. Chargers get F, like three F's <laughs> and a and two D pluses. They they have to be near the top. Oh my God. <laughs> Come on oh, now. Can't have that. All right, there you go. Uh, there's the NFLPA grades uh, on the organization. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
All righty, spring training in full bloom. So let's get to the highlight of uh, today's Mike Masnelli podcast. We'll talk some baseball with, with our next guest. I, you know, I think he's got a pretty good resume. I'm not sure. Ten-time uh, All-Star, two-time Cy Young, uh, uh, five-time National League wins leader, and, and I buried the league because he's in the Hall of Fame. And of course, 1995 World Series MVP. He is the great Tom Glavin. Hello, Tom. Hello, Mike. How you doing? Doing good. Now, I got to say, uh, here's the caveat. You know, most likely, the people here in Philly uh, will consider you a villain for obvious reasons. <laughs> but but we've already had Smoltz on, so so he broke the ice on that. So you're, I guess you're pretty good. And uh, you know, here's what Philly fans do: they they respect achievement, and uh, they, they certainly have to respect uh, your achievement. So uh, let's talk a little baseball here. Um, yeah, I don't even know where to start with you because it, it, your career has been so amazing. But but let's start with, with the Philly connection because um, I know a lot of people that looked at this uh, this Philly crowd craziness in the playoffs, and they're going, "That's a tough place to play." But I remember because I was in the park in in 1993 when you guys played the Phillies of that that crazy team that wound up going to the World Series. Uh, and and Vet Stadium was about to fly up up into the the crowd. What what do you remember when you look at the crowds that you saw on TV today with the Phillies, and then back then when you were battling with the Phillies, what, did did anything come to mind? I mean, similar a lot of similarities. Yeah, um, you know, it's a tough place to play. Um, you know, probably a few more fans at the Vet uh, than the new place, just uh, because that's the different capacity. But I think the uh, the energy the passion the enthusiasm is all the same and um you know it, it does certainly bring up memories of for me playing in the bet um and and knowing knowing what a difficult environment it was and and you know i got to play i got a chance to play in the new ballpark too and um it's loud it's um you know like i say it, it you know going in there as a visiting player uh you're probably going to hear a bad word or two uh during the course of your stay um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I would, I would definitely put it up there with, um, you know, certainly one of the, one of the ballparks, um, maybe top five in baseball in terms of a, of a home crowd, um, advantage and, and influence on a ball game for sure. Who, who pitched against Schilling that night? Cause that went night was the, I one think it was Maddox. I think it was Greg. Yeah. Okay. So then they, they had to go back to Atlanta and beat you. Uh, no, actually, I think they, I think they beat us there in game six. I think if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just remember the shilling game cause it was uh, pretty. Yeah. Good. I just remember we, uh, we, we didn't think we were going to make it back to the hotel on the bus. Uh, cause I thought the bus was going to get tipped over. It was, it was nuts. Really? They were, they were jostling. Oh my God. You? It was, um, it was unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Uh, I didn't know that was, that was happening. Uh, so, you know, I want to look back at your career because it's really a fascinating career. Um, you can when, first of all, let's go back to the beginning. So, well, what's the, what's the name of the high school you went to? I always pronounce it wrong. Uh, Billerica High School. Billerica Memorial High Bill School. Yes. High School. And so you, now you have a choice of, of baseball and hockey. And a lot of people, uh, don't understand how good of a hockey player you were. You were you were taken in the fourth round of the NFL uh, NHL draft. You had forty seven goals and forty seven assists in twenty three high school games. You were a sniper. <laughs> yeah, I could score a little bit. Um, yeah, I was. I mean, I was a good player. I'm mean, not going to lie. I was, and and you know, people ask me all the time. Um, 
you know, the two sports and why you went to baseball, whatever. And, and, you know, truth be told, I tell people this all the time and they kind of look at me like, come on. Um, I was a better hockey player at that point in time than I was a baseball player. Um, you know, I was, I was not a pitcher. I was a thrower. I didn't know what I was doing on the mound. Um, I just threw the ball as hard as I could. Sometimes I threw strikes. Um, you know, a typical high school game for me was, you know, I'd probably strike out 12 and I'd walk five. Um, so, you know, I didn't exactly have a command of what I was doing. My mechanics were terrible. So, but I had a good arm, you know, and, and that was why I got drafted. And, and, uh, you know, I think for me, you know, truth be told, the harder decision between the two was I was, go I was going to college and I planned on going to college. I had a scholarship to go to college and play baseball and hockey. Um, it was more of a hockey scholarship than it was a baseball scholarship, but I was going to try and do both. Uh, and that was really the bigger question that I want to forego a college scholarship and try baseball or not. Um, you know, and once the Braves got to a point where it made it worth my while financially, and I knew if it didn't work out, I could go back and pay for my own college and take that burden off my dad's shoulders. Um, then it became, all right, you know, at the end of the day, there's pros and cons in both sports. Um, but I'm a left-handed pitcher and that gives me an advantage in baseball that I don't have in hockey. So I better try and use that. That was a well thought out decision. Uh, <laughs> it I mean, turned really, out all right. <laughs> no, for, for a young kid, that's a, that's a unbelievable heavy decision to make. Uh, wh where would you have gone to college? What was the college? Uh, I was going to go to what is now UMass Lowell. So, uh, hockey East, um, good baseball program. You know, the problem for me was, you know, it, it's so different than it is today, but, um, you know, I, I, Hockey schools got to see me through my senior year. Baseball schools only saw me through my junior year. You know, back then you weren't committing to a school as a sixth grader or a seventh grader. You were actually, you know, committing as a senior. So, um, you know, hockey schools got to see me further along than the baseball schools did. And I had a number of hockey schools up in Boston uh, that didn't have baseball programs back then. You know, uh, BC recruited me pretty heavily. You know, today, that'd be a great school to go to. Great hockey program, great baseball program. But back then, they didn't have baseball. Um, you know, so it was really narrowed down to me, like I said, trying to go somewhere where I could get a good education and try and play both sports. And, you know, UMass Lowell at the time uh, had just joined Hockey East. They were, re I think, really, really good Division II baseball team. So uh, that was what I was going to try and do. You must have uh, pitched in a lot of cold weather. A lot, yes. In your high school yes. Days, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I went to. I played baseball at Penn State. I know how cold it can be in in those when you're trying to play in the spring. It's just not warming up. So, uh, so you make the decision. You get to the big leagues pretty quick. I mean, 21, you're in the big leagues, um, and 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 it didn't go well right away. So and and all of a sudden it clicked for you. So tell take me through that transition of you know the, and then all, all of a sudden boom 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 you went twenty games three years in a row. So what what turned it around for you? It was kind of a phase. I mean, um, you know, my first year, like you said, um, didn't go well. I mean, I lost seventeen games, and and I guess the the silver lining for me there was I just kept reminding myself the Braves must like something that I'm doing to send me out there to lose 17 games, quite honestly, you know? Um, and, and that was kind of the way I looked at it. So I knew there was something there that they liked. I knew that we, obviously we weren't a good team. Um, and, and it was about, it was about me showing progress from start to start. Um, and over time I did that, you know, the second half of that year, I pitched a lot better 
statistically didn't necessarily win any more games because we still weren't any good, but um, I was pitching better. So that was, that was the key. I went home that winter and realized when I threw strikes, I pitched well. When I didn't, I didn't. So I went home that winter and focused almost exclusively on fastball command. That's, that's all I worked on was trying to get better with my fastball command. I came back the next year and I had a good year. Uh, won 14 games my second year in the big leagues and then had a little regression again in my third year. I went, I think, 10 and 12 my third year. Um, and, it, and it became obvious to me that I, I needed a secondary pitch, primarily a changeup. At that stage of the game, I was still pretty much a fastball, curveball guy, and my changeup was very inconsistent. Um, so it became apparent more so that I really needed to come up with um, a change up and add to my, my repertoire. Uh, so I, you know, it was a little bit, a little less easy to get boxed in. Um, so I developed, you came up with it. You came up with it pretty good. The, the, the circle change, like a death knell pitch. For, well, for yeah. And, and the great thing about it was, is I came up with it by mistake. You know, I was, I was shagging outfield. I was shagging BP in the outfield in spring training one day and a ball rolled to me and, and it, and it settled in my hand where it, it was my my grip was essentially my middle finger and my ring finger were on the ball and my index finger. So essentially, I shifted my fastball over from index finger, middle finger to middle finger, ring finger. And I thought, man, that feels pretty good in my hand, you know, and, and I, I had a I had a bullpen the next day. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Um, and I threw it the next day in the bullpen. I was like, man, I think I'm on to something here because it was. It was the kind of, you know, the thing that I would struggle with my circle change, which so many guys struggle with, was was arm speed. And and I didn't have the confidence in it to have consistent arm speed. And when I picked that new changeup grip up and I threw it in the bullpen, I was like, man, I can throw this thing as hard as I want, and it's just not coming out of my hand. So now I had to figure out how to get it around the strike zone and, and get consistent with it. And, and that took a while. Um, but I think that was the key for me in the 91 season was with that pitch, you know, now I, now I had an out pitch, but now I had a pitch that if I had my B game or my C game, I could keep myself in the game and give myself a chance to win. That was the pitch that kind of held me together when I didn't have my best stuff. And, and it's like, you know, I say, listen, you go out there with your best stuff. You should win. Um, okay. But what are you going to do the other 20 games out of the year where you kind of have your B stuff stuff or your C stuff. Before I had that change up when I was younger, I couldn't win those games. I didn't know how to win those games. And once I developed my change up, those were games that now became winnable for me. And that's when things really took off. Pinpoint control. And uh, so you win 20 and 11, 20 and eight and 93 is the big year that everybody talks about here with the Phillies Uh, 22 and six. 3.20 3.20 and lose to Cy Young to Maddox. Yeah. Like what, what's, what's that? <laughs> what? Seriously? Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, uh, you're not going to find too many guys that win guys that win two 22 games and don't win a Cy Young award. But, um, you know, you look at Greg's numbers that year, we're, we're still pretty stupid. Um, you know, innings pitch, strikeouts to walks, ERA, all that stuff was, his numbers were all better than mine there. Um, I just was the benefactor of, of winning some more games somehow, but, um, you know, listen, uh, I'm not going to say it wasn't disappointing, but at least it was our teammate, so that was a good thing. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm imagining you give him, like, a sly eye at, at, when that came down. Of course, absolutely. You know, like, 
Come on, man. And you guys still have that rivalry now uh, on the golf course. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, like it, when you look at all your decisions, I mean, 305 wins and you have to stay in games for a really long time. To do, and you just don't see that anymore. The game has changed so much as far as how they they breed pitchers coming up to remind you, give us your best stuff, throw 96, torque it and give us and the bullpen will take over. Um, what, what did you think of that transition? Yeah, I mean, you lasted a long time. You lasted pitching as many innings as you did. You're pitching at 40 years old at a pretty high level. Uh, and these guys are burning out really early. I mean, I don't love it. Um, you know, it's probably it's probably the part of the game, I guess, that I I, I like the least. Um, you know, it aggravates me. It frustrates me. Whatever, whatever word you want to call it, right? And um, you know, I, I, I am pretty quick to say, I don't, I don't blame the pitchers. You know, that's the way these guys are being brought up today. They're being brought up on velocity, velocity, velocity. Um, you know, I see it with, uh, I saw it with my son, uh, when he was in high school and college, nobody, if you weren't throwing mid nineties, nobody cared, nobody looked at you. Um, you know, these kids know what, what it takes to get drafted and it's all about velocity. That's why you hear so many high school kids, you know, talk about, oh, what was my velo? Or what was it? It's like, who cares what your velo was? But it matters. I mean, that that's, they put so much of a premium on velo now that, that that's what everybody focuses on. But, you know, it's like I say to people all the time, I, I look at, I can look at this generation and say, oh, these guys are soft. They can't pitch into the seventh inning. They can't, whatever. The generation before me, Nolan Ryan and, and Bob Gibson and those guys, they thought my generation was soft, you know? So, it, 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 it goes across, you know, all generations, but I, I think the, 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 the more frustrating part is that these, like I said, these guys are just being brought up on that's what's expected, right? You hear, you hear on broadcasts all the time, but, oh, you know, we got to change pitchers. A guy can't go through the lineup for the third time. Well, why can't he? Who said he can't, you know? And, and the problem is that's what these guys buy into now, because now they know, well, they're not going to let me flip the lineup for a third time. So, I'm just going to let it eat for five innings, throw it as hard as I can. And, and there's, you know, there's no, there's no, like we used to do a little bit. There's no reserve tank for the seventh inning or the eighth inning, right? Your, your, your tank is emptied in the fifth. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I don't love it, but I think that more than anything else is the reason why we'll never see another 300 game winner because guys, a aren't pitching long enough, but B they're not staying in games long enough to win them. You know, I don't know how many games I won in the seventh inning or the eighth inning. Uh, I know it was a bunch, uh, but these guys today aren't given, aren't being given that opportunity pretty much ever. 56 complete games, 40, uh, 4,413 innings pitched. Um, how did you keep your arm healthy? What was your routine? Cortisone shots. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, listen, I say that, Kiddingly, but it was true sometimes. Um, you know, listen, I was lucky. I, I I had some issues that I that I had to deal with, but thank God never required surgery. You know, I, I 91, 92, I was good. Um, 90 after the 92 season, back to back, you know, deep playoff runs. I remember I started throwing that winter and I was like, uh oh, something's not right. And, you know, sure enough, I had an MRI and I had a partial thickness tear of my rotator cuff. And they said, listen, you can either pitch if you can deal with the pain or you can have surgery and you're going to miss the year. And I was like, well, screw it. Let's see if I can pitch. You know, I mean, 
Um, and I did that year. I did. I got a lot of cortisone shots to kind of get me through the hump. But, you know, it was one of those things where I had to learn how to pitch over again a little bit because my the pain decreased my velocity. So I was pitching 82, 84 with a 78 mile an hour changeup and, you know, having to throw it where I wanted to. And then, you know, they told me it'd be about 18 months before you fully got back to normal. And, and I'll be damned. They were pretty spot on. Uh, and then I had to learn to pitch all over again because now I started throwing 88, 89 again, and the ball wasn't sinking the same as it did at 82, 84. And I had to learn how to locate it again. So, uh, you know, I had some struggles in 94, kind of trying to reincorporate my velocity and all those things. But, you know, I was, I was, like I said, I, I think that was the extent of it. I'd have some flare ups with my bicep tendon, my rotator cuff from time to time, but usually it was, you know, some Advil or a cortisone shot that would kind of put me back over the hump. And I never had to have anything fixed until I got done. Thank God. How's your shoulder now? Not bad. It's good. You know, I mean, I, I had it fixed when I got done, you know, I had to have my rotator cuff reattached and some, some staples and bridges and all that in there. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily keen on doing it, but I remember, you know, our orthopedic at the time was a dear friend of mine. He said, listen, the longer you wait, the harder your rehab is going to be. Um, and I was like, all right, I'll, let's just, so I took about a year off and, and, and then did it. And it was about a nine month to a year rehab, but you know, it was perfect timing because my kids then were at those ages where they were starting to play travel ball and do all that stuff. So I could go out and play catch. I could throw BP all day long, uh, and it didn't yeah, hurt anymore. Yeah, so it was great. That question. <laughs> yeah. Cause I know you had kids and, and you probably want to throw with them. And, and so, uh, well, that's good that you, you feel that way. Uh, there are a couple things I want to address that are, uh, I saw a video recently of of the time you were uh, throwing at Dale Murphy, who was a Philly, <laughs> yeah. who was the Philly at the time. Yeah, and uh, it's the last guy you want to throw at. Yeah. but the, the circumstances were such that you had to do it. So take me take me through. You threw like four balls behind them, yeah. really, and no, no chance to hit him. And he probably knew what was going on. But I I thought that was really interesting. How did you perceive that? Yeah. Moment? So you know, I mean, we had the we had the deal where we had the brawl in Atlanta the week before. Uh, we turned around, came to Philly, uh, and we were all convinced that you know Friday night in Philly that um, Otis was going to get hit, and that was going to be the end of it. Um, Nixon. Yeah. Um, so Friday night comes and goes, nothing happens. Saturday, nothing happens. And we're like, okay, well, nothing's going to happen. Um, well, sure enough, I think Roger McDowell came in in the eighth inning and Otis led off and first pitch, he hit, hit Otis. I want to say he hit him in the head, if I remember correctly. I mean, he, he smoked him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was sitting on the bench and I see Bobby come walking down the bench, sits down next to me. And he says, you got to hit the first guy. And I was like, Bobby, it's Murph. Can I hit the second guy? Uh, he's like, no, you got to hit Murph. I was like, damn, okay. So, you know, looking back on it, I, I didn't handle it well. I should, I mean, I should have hit him and should have been done with it. But I mean, you know, listen, he was a guy that when I got to Atlanta, I mean, he was he was everything and, and still is in a lot of ways. Uh, he was the only reason people were coming to games when I first got to Atlanta. And you know, he took me under his wing and did a lot of things for me and, and, you know, was great to me. So I was like, man, it's like I was, I was hitting my dad or my big brother, you know? Um, so I, so when you, when you didn't hit him, was that good enough for Bob? No, I was bad. I was, it turned out, I mean, it was bad. Like I said, if I had one thing to do, I mean, I'd say one thing, maybe yeah. that would be on the list. I'd probably have a couple things I'd do over, but that would definitely be at the top of my list. I mean, I didn't, I, I threw the first pitch thinking, all right, just hit him and, and be done with it. And when I missed, 
you know, he looked at me like, huh, okay. And then, you know, when you watch the video, subsequent, every pitch I threw after that, like he was almost out of the batter's box before I let go of the ball. So, I mean, I was trying to chase him a little bit. And, and you know, Bob Davidson came out, I think, after the second pitch. He's like, hey, if you do that again, I have to throw you out. I was like, I understand, Bob. I know. Um, so, you know, that was it. And, you know, it, it caused a rift between me and Otis a little bit. And I get it. Um, but, um, you know, it was just, look, it was, but I'll tell you what, I mean, I didn't hit Murph, but you, you would be shocked at the amount of fan mail I got in Atlanta from people that were just pissed off at me. Like, who the hell do you think you are hitting Dale Murphy? I'm getting all these, like, you know, how dare you hit Dale Murphy? And I'm reading, I'm thinking to myself, I didn't hit him. I missed him. So, you know, (laughs) but anyway, yeah, it was, it didn't, it didn't go the way it should have gone, but Murph was good about it. That's outstanding. Uh, I, 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 I got to talk to you about the, the De- you were you were there with the Deion Sanders craziness yep. of, of him, and, and playing the, the the football game and, and, and baseball. Anyway, what was what was the fanfare like in in the in the clubhouse over that stuff? Um, you know, honestly, it wasn't bad. I think you know because we all loved Deion. Deion was a great teammate. Um, you know, it, it it when when he was in the clubhouse with us and it was just a guy's good teammate. He'd give you the shirt off his back. You know, I think Dion was, you know, next to Muhammad Ali in terms of self-marketing. He, he knew what it was. You know, when that when that red light went on on a camera, it was it wasn't Dion anymore. It was prime time. And he knew that. And, and he, he just did a phenomenal job marketing himself. And so there was two different personas and, and, and we didn't see the prime time in the clubhouse. You know, he was just one of the guys. Um, so he was a lot of fun to be around. And, and I think we all you know, we knew what it was, was he was doing and, and, you know, how um, special a thing it was. I mean, listen, it's quite frankly, not many of us in the locker room, if any of us were good enough to go play two sports. So, you know, the fact that he was, uh, I think we understood that. Now it it was crazy at times, obviously, especially for us new to the playoffs and, and trying to navigate our way through some of those things. And we have all the fanfare of him going to play a football game and then, you know, jets, planes, and planes, trains, and automobiles getting to the stadium to play a baseball game later that day. I mean, it was, it was a little bit nuts, but, um, again, I think we understood, uh, the specialness, so to speak of, of yeah. what he was. Well, and, you know, it's funny you say he, he was a good teammate because if he wasn't, that probably would not be looked at very well in a clubhouse. No, so, it would have, it would have been too big of a distraction for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's uh, uh, let's move on because I'm interested. I know you play a lot of Philly golf courses when when you get a chance, and you did when when you were still still playing. Uh, what is your favorite golf course? And and and, and you guys play together. You Smoltz and Maddox play a lot together. Who's the best player? Uh, and what courses did you enjoy here? Uh, Smoltz is the best player. I'm uh, I'm trying to gain ground on him. Um, you know, back in those days, it was Greg and I were pretty even, and John was. Eh, he was better than us. I don't know if I'd say significantly, but he was better than us. Um, so, you know, we, he giving you strokes. Yeah. He would is give he us strokes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of times, Greg, a lot of times Greg and I would, Greg and I would play him best ball. So it'd be our, me and Greg's best ball against John. And, and you know, it, yeah, I mean, it would, uh, there were times where the, the, the gambling got a little bit stupid and, and, you know, we had, to, <laughs> we had to rein it in a little bit because, you know, I guess to a point where it's like, Hey, you know, we got a thousand bucks on the line here on this hole, John, and your ball's sitting on a root. I don't care if you break your wrist, you got to hit it, you know? So, and I'm like, what are we doing? You know, this is kind of stupid. So, 
You know, all three of you are competitive as hell. I, yeah. so I can imagine what's going on in those for games. For sure, for sure. But um, you know, we so we realized we had to tone it down a little bit, and we did. But um, you know, man, I tell you what, like early on when it, uh, you know, it, I didn't really necessarily love some of the bigger cities, and and I don't know that I loved Philadelphia initially. But uh, once I started playing golf, man, that was that that Philadelphia was circled on the schedule all the time because you knew going in. You know, you're going to play Pine Valley. You're going to play Marion. You're going to play maybe Aronimac, Aronimac, however you say it. I mean, you know, there's so many good golf courses in Philadelphia. That was a, it was a trip that you look forward to. And, um, you know, we made some good friends there uh, on the golf courses. So, um, you know, it was fun because, you know, we'd have to leave those guys tickets to the game. But then they had they were rooting for the Phillies. So it was a little bit of an odd dynamic. We just we just told them they had to keep it down a little bit if they were in the Braves family section. Did you ever play uh, White Marsh Valley? That's where I play. I don't think I played that. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Okay. It's right down the street from Philly Cricket, which. Oh, okay. Philly Cricket Club is a good one too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to end it with this one uh, because y- you uh, you leave the Braves. Uh, I don't know. Was it was it was it bitter when you left the Braves? I mean, you know, you were you were looking for more years than they were willing to give you. I might have been insulted by that. Uh, and and so you signed four years with the Mets, like. Take me through that moment, and then and then you have a great season in 2007 for the Mets. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where, look, I, would, I wanted to stay in Atlanta. I assumed I was going to stay in Atlanta. And, and when negotiations started, it was kind of like, uh-oh, this might not be as easy as I thought it was going to be. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it – yeah, it, it became a, a lot of things, you know. Um, you know, I started the whole process telling the Braves I wanted a three-year deal and, and they didn't want to do that. And, uh, you know, essentially told me go shop myself. And I did, uh, when I came back, um, and I had, you know, more than three years from the Phillies and the Mets and I had more money from the Phillies and the Mets. I went back to the Braves. I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not asking you to match anything. Anybody offered me. I want, I want what I asked for originally, which was three years and $30 million. And, you know, they kept telling me you're never going to get that. Um, and when I had it from two teams, I said, listen, I'm not asking you to match it. Just, I want what I asked for initially. And they just, you know, they didn't want to do it. Um, I don't know why, I don't know what it was. Um, but it, it definitely got to a place where it was personal and, you know, then it, and then it became, okay, well, I'm clearly not going to stay here. And, And it was down to the Mets and the Phillies. And, um, I really liked the people with the Phillies at the time. I love Dave Montgomery. Um, you know, good guy and, and, you know, uh, like the people that were there, but, uh, you know, honestly, inevitably what sold me was I was, you know, being in New York, living in Connecticut, I was two hours closer to my mom and dad than I would have been in Philadelphia. And, you know, they were getting older. I was getting at the end of my career. So, you know, they were able to come down all the time and watch me. And, and so that was, that was the big part of it, but it was tough. I mean, playing in New York is hard. I'm not going to lie. I mean, that first year was tough. Uh, and then you learn kind of how to deal with it and, and we got better and teams got better and, and it turned out to be a really fun experience. Yeah. So it was a Phillies loss cause they were an up and coming team. And so now let's get to 2007. You guys look like you have the pen locked up and you start melting down and here come this, this young Phillies team. They're on the kind of the on deck circle for, for, to, to win. Uh, and, uh, they send you out the last game that, that you, you guys need to win it. Um, and, and you're, they, they send you out that, but were you on short rest? No, I think I was normal. Yeah, I was normal. I was just on, I was on, um, I was not very good at the time and I knew it, you know, I mean, I was praying like hell that we were going to, 
lock that thing up before we got to a game like that. And, and, you know, as I was saying earlier, there's a few things I'd like to do over in my career. That would be one of them, uh, is, is that game. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, we had a lot of things go wrong in September. Um, you know, didn't, didn't play well, you know, lost some games that we should have won. And, you know, it was a kind of perfect storm and it all came down to that game. And, and, you know, after I won my, my 300th game that year, um, you know, I want to say my last two starts going before that game were not good. I mean, I wasn't throwing the ball good. I wasn't comfortable on the mound and I knew it. Um, and it was just bad timing, you know, uh, inevitably every season you go through for me, except for maybe one, the 98 year, um, there's always a stretch of time of four or five starts where you don't feel right. And you're trying to find something, you're trying to fix something. You're just trying to survive knowing that you're going to come out on the other end. Unfortunately for me, it was that stretch. And, you know, I, I knew going into that, that last game, I mean, I was not throwing the ball well. I had my bullpen and the whole time walking from the bullpen, I'm just thinking to myself, dear God, I hope I, something flicks. I hope I figure something because it, it was bad. I mean, it was just, I had no feel. I had no command. I had no confidence in what I was doing. And it showed, I can tell you that. Yeah, they, and and of course the Phillies. That was a springboard for them. They get smoked by Colorado uh, in, in the playoffs, but then they they become came the team that they were. And full circle, it comes now with the Braves and the Phillies. Uh, two years in a row, the Braves have gone in as the favorite in that series. Two years ago, in a row, they go out. I I still don't know how they they just seem to collapse in those two situations, especially in Philadelphia. So uh, and they're still favored this year. They're still good. So, you know, what do you see with the Braves and, and what do you see with the Phillies right now? Um, you know, I, I think it's just one of those things where the the Phillies, for whatever reason, have have been a tough matchup for the Braves, um, you know, particularly in a short series like that. And, and I think in particular because of their starting pitching, you know, they can they can run three guys out there um, that, that can dominate. And, and I think that that's. That's always the key in a postseason, right? I mean, I think this Brave, this, these these last couple of years with the Braves teams, they're 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 structured very similar to some of the teams I played on in the sense that over 162 games, they're just going to wear you down, and 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 they're they're just going to beat teams, right? But if you get into a playoff series, you know now you're you're getting against some teams that can match you a little bit, um, and 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 I don't I. I didn't think for a second that the Phillies offense was going to do what it was in that series. But I did think that the pitching was going to be make it tough on the Braves. Like, you know, the Braves are an offensive juggernaut all year long. And, and um, you know, they were obviously a really good team. But you look at, at that going into a series like that against the starting quality of starting pitching they're going to face. You know, I didn't expect the Braves to go in and, and even do what Philly ended up doing. You know, I just thought the pitching is too good. You know, they might score four or five runs a game or something like that, but it's going to be a hard-fought series. So, you know, I think that's what happens. You, once you get into those short series like that, um, you know, some of the advantages you have over 162 games kind of go out the window a little bit. Uh, and I just think the Phillies are, are a team that, for whatever reason, has been a really tough mat tough matchup for the Braves. And, and I think all of us – who had watched the Braves all year long going into the postseason? That the Philly was the one team I think we looked at as that—that's the team we're going to have to worry about. 
Yeah, you start going oh for early in a series, and then you start squeezing a little bit. Oh, for sure. Having to break for years. Uh, uh, listen, uh, Tom, thanks so much for being uh, a part of the Mike Missnelli podcast. We really appreciate it. Very enlightening, uh, very enjoyable conversation. And uh, maybe we can do this uh, down the road, okay? You know where to find me. I'll be happy to do it. All right, thank you. Tom Glavin, everybody. It's the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Oh, this, uh, thank you so much to Tom Glavin. Who joined us now? We, now we have Smoltz, we have Glavin. I, I guess we need Maddox next, and then we'll throw in Steve Avery. Yeah, I'm working uh, on Maddox. Steve Avery will be down the down the, down the road. <laughs> but uh, hope you enjoyed a uh, conversation with a Hall of Fame pitcher who also was drafted to be a hockey player and probably could have been a professional hockey player in the Bruins organization. It is now time for Mike Unleashed. All right, uh, so Mike Unleashed will start with uh last night in the nba uh, and, and i know people might be sick of uh of lebron james uh there are people that have never liked him uh, i always have uh, i think it is uh, absolutely mind-boggling what he is uh doing now in the nba and last night he had a monster game one of the great games you're ever going to see at forget like for an average player much less somebody who's pushing 40 years old the Los Angeles Lakers were losing to the Los Angeles Clippers in the fourth quarter by 21 points. My man comes back with 19 points in the fourth quarter with five three-pointers, and the Lakers come back to win the game over the clip joint. Now, that is a mind-boggling performance. 19 points in the fourth quarter for LeBron James carrying his team on his back uh, as they win the game. And uh, for a point of information, our old pal Jimmy Harden, was a, uh, he had 23 points, but he was a minus 12. Uh, your opinion on uh, LeBron James? Uh, you know, it is, he can still, when he wants, take over a game. It's clear that he's aging. And he can't do it as consistently, I think, as he would like when he want, when he wants to. And by the way, that was a statement for him last night against the Clippers. Clippers are the favorite, I think, right now to come out of the West. So to me, that was a statement that was a, uh, a, a, a to the rest of the league. I'm still here. Uh, he's not a great three point so, shooter. I, I was all. impressed. So for him to make five, that was adrenaline that took over in that fourth quarter. All right. That's pretty mind boggling. I had to mention it. So let's stay in the NBA uh, or Damian Lillard. Um, gave a story uh, where he says he's very lonely in Milwaukee. Uh, and and he all he does is stay home and, and play video games. Now, a lot of people cynically would say, oh, come on, man. You're making $50 million a year. You're lonely. You can buy your way out of loneliness. But here's the point. These guys are still human beings. Now, he got a divorce right at the time of the trade. He'd been married for a long time. He had a lot of kids with this woman. And so he moves to Milwaukee on the heels of a divorce. So he's no longer around his family and the whole bit. And I actually have empathy for the guy. Now, he'll get used to it, and he'll find someone else rather quickly that he can shack up with. But the, the point of the matter is, it's got to be a jolt for a guy like that who was very loyal to his home city and made a lot of roots there and was in the community a lot and has his kids raised there, moved his whole family out there, his mother and his brothers and all that stuff. And they're all still out in Portland when he's in Milwaukee. So uh, I, the cynic would say, shut up. 
you make it 50, 60 million dollars, stop with the loneliness. We're supposed to feel sorry for you. What on a human aspect, I kind of feel sorry for the guy. You? I would, yeah, I do. I, uh, and I would feel empathy for anyone that had to move to Milwaukee, period. <laughs> I don't know. No, By it's the way, actually not a bad I had a city. girlfriend once. I, I've been to Milwaukee. I know, it's not but, bad, except for where it's cold. He had his mindset on South Beach, where the loneliness wouldn't oh, have yeah. been as uh, obvious <laughs> in Miami yeah. as it is in Milwaukee. <laughs> so I think, I think that's yeah. affected his play. I mean, he's played okay, but he hasn't played at the superstar level. And I think all that stuff's weighing on him. When you're not comfortable and, and you, you go out and try to perform at, at your highest level, it's got to affect you a little bit. So I don't know what's going to happen. With There's that. no question. There's no question. You know, that's a game. You know, playing professional sports, it's not just physical. There's It's 60% yeah, mental. If you don't feel comfortable and in your environment. Not more. You know, you, you, you yeah. used to yeah. leave the house. The kids going, okay, daddy, see you later. We're going to come to the game. And you go to Milwaukee and, you know, you take a, 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 a car into the arena and, and like, you know, you're playing picture. You play video games and you're in your house. And, you know, basically, I, I'm a shut Dude. in like Damian Lillard. Now, uh, yeah, if I'm away from my wife and daughters for four days on oh, a business trip, Look I get you, like, family. I miss them. Leave us yeah. alone. You're That's a family man. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, okay. I just wanted to mention that. Now, here's a, uh, kind of a funny thing. We're going to play a soundbite uh, for you in a second. Carolyn Peck, the former longtime uh, women's basketball uh, name. She was a player and a coach and now a commentator. And she got a little Southern accent to her. So uh, she was describing something. And it sounded like, if you didn't really factor in this is great, the, 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 the Southern accent, <laughs> It sounded like she was saying bitch. <laughs> right. So let, let's 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 hear the soundbite of Carolyn Peck. As a coach, I say, bitch, stay in this ballgame. Stay excited. Stay enthusiastic. Pull your team through. I don't care if the officials are telling you to sit down. All right. So she's not saying bitch. She's saying bench. <laughs> All right, I so love, let's just get that straight. It. Before lady was raked over to Coles, how could you let her say bitch on the air? <laughs> Come on, man. All right, here's another bizarre story. Tyreek Hill, who's like, uh, listen, the guy's always been a maniac. So, so he is now being sued by a model and social media influencer. Now, this, this guy's allegedly married. I, I don't know how he pulls all this stuff off, but he always seems to have like a, a guma on on the same, you know, in his house burned down the whole bit. I, I don't know what's going on with the guy's personal and life. And a paternity he's, he, you know, he's kind of out there. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, the model's yeah. name is Sophie Hall. She alleges in the lawsuit that Hill quote forcefully and purposely shoved her after she quote humiliated and quote enraged him by knocking him backwards during a football blocking drill. She, <laughs> all right, here you go. All right, that's it. How did how did this transpire? A football blocking yeah. drill. What's the right. backstory of it? Well, as it turns out, now the woman suffered a fractured leg, had to undergo surgery, orthopedic reconstruction, and hardware implementation. I guess she had pins put in to fix the, the broken leg. Hill invited Hall, is the model's name, to his house in Broward County, big, big sprawling estate. 
after Hall enrolled her 10-year-old son in the Tyreek Hill football camp. Now, picture the scene. Tyreek sees this hot mom, and he goes, oh, oh, oh. hey, why don't you come again? You know, I'll give you a little private football lessons that you can help the kid with. Right, so he invites her to participate uh, on uh, uh, his his uh, some offensive line drills at his house. He says he asked her to stand in a defensive line stance while he stood opposite her in an offensive lineman stance, hiked the ball to the quarterback. I'm assuming this is his tricky way of just kind of getting like rubbing up against somebody, right? <laughs> You know exactly. So he's not, he the doesn't give quarterback. Two he told her to rush drill. him as if he wanted to chase the quarterback. So he's in this guy's mind. This woman's going to fondle me. I like it. So, so anyway, the woman is she's six this foot one. So lunatic. she's tall, model esque. She pushed him backwards yeah. and drew laughs from onlookers, including Hill's mother, sister, friend, and trainer, which alleges Hill then became embarrassed and angry in front of his people. So Hill then calls for the two to set up another play, this time with the woman as the offensive lineman. Uh, and and uh, on the fourth play, Hill charged into her violently with great force, resulting in significant and serious injuries. <laughs> After the play, he downplayed the injury and he secured travel arrangements for her a couple days later couple days later she's still hanging at the crib for a couple days with a broken leg that's like false imprisonment but finally he he lets her go and he gets a, gets her a ride home she sues uh do you have any take on this bizarre tyreek hill story i think he missed a golden opportunity there so she does that pushes him back the smooth move would to be oh you laugh about it sure that's awesome you're you're you know but kind of like Make a big deal in a good way about it. Make her feel good about it. No, he has to go all child on on her and act like a screaming. Yeah, this guy's just—he's uh, somebody just waiting to to explode. Really, he's got those kind of exactly. tendencies. Uh, all right, he's he's almost uh, he's almost Antonio yeah. Brown. Anyway. Uh, okay, bizarre story. Uh, let's get to a yeah, semi golf story. Yeah, they got time to fill here. It's between seasons. They had the, this tournament in Mexico where uh, Manny Mo and Jack played. Like no, no, no big, <laughs> big stars. I want, want to go to Mexico, which I find bizarre. Uh, so they're like between good tournaments. And uh, so they, they arranged the uh, TNT arranges and they've had it every year at the match. And last year they had the, you know, Brady was involved in it. And uh, 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 Josh, uh, 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 Josh Allen, Josh Allen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aaron Rodgers yeah. was in So it this time year. they matched up women with men. And it was uh, Rory McIlroy, who's, you know, very camera, camera friendly. And Max Homa, who's not, you know, he's not exactly popular, but people that watch golf like him. I'm a Homa guy. He's yeah, got a he, sense of humor. He's got a Twitter That's account like and all that. Uh, against uh, uh, Rose Zhang and Alexi Thompson, who have no personality, none whatsoever. And it was 12 holes of boredom. And of course, they bring Charles in there to enlighten things. And all of a sudden, I look, so who's the commentator on the course in a golf cart? But DJ Khaled, I'm going, what? What is, how does he get in there? DJ Khaled with some other guy. I think he was an MMA guy. I didn't know who he was. Well, come on, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway. That's, yeah, it's ridiculous. They did a horrible yeah, job did, of marketing it's that. It's just not way. exciting. I mean, nobody cares that much about 
Rosé and Alexi Tung. You got to be a diehard follower uh, of the uh, LPGA uh, to really be interested in that kind of thing. And and nobody really cares about Max Homie, even though I like him. Everybody cares about Rory, but you got to have more of a dynamic. And you got to have some back and forth. And there really wasn't. Zang and Lexi Thompson didn't want to play along with the whole concept. So it was really boring. Fire the person that thought DJ Khaled was a good idea. Uh, It was the lowest rated, and (laughs) I can see why. Uh, okay, uh, let's yeah. we'll end this on a solemn note, and uh, I hate to do that, but uh, there were a couple deaths this week that shook me. Uh, yesterday, we found out that Richard Lewis died. Richard Lewis is one of my all-time favorites. Even like before Kirby Enthusiasm, I really liked his stand-up. He had that Jewish angst thing going on. It was hysterical. Uh, and, and he and Larry David have been friends since they've been 12 years old, so they had a great dynamic on Kirby Enthusiasm. You know, that show's been on for 23 uh, years now. Uh, and now there haven't been 23 seasons, but it started out in 2000, 2000, I think. Uh, and so most of the, their scenes were, were ad lib and, uh, they were hysterical. Uh, and the one that stands out to me is that they, they actually, I don't even know if this happened in real life to Richard Lewis, but they had him having, needing a liver transplant on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Cause he was kind of, he really was kind of sickly. He, he had a lot of, uh, of maladies, but they turned this into a, a couple of really good Kirby Enthusiasm shows where he was bedridden and he had, he had a nurse. And the, the, the theme of the show was how women rate uh, men's genitalia and mock men for being tiny. And Jeff, who's on the show, says, no, 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 it's not that men are tiny. It's that women have large vaginas. So it was large the, it was the large vagina episode. <laughs> And Richard Lewis yeah. was wrapped into all this because the nurse he had, he noticed that his signed Mickey Mantle ball on his bureau was stolen. He couldn't figure out how she got it out of the room. <laughs> the implication was that she yes. hid it in her overly large vagina, and that's how she got it out. <laughs> and at the end, a cell phone rings that was supposed to be in her vagina. It's a crazy, it was one of the funniest right. ever. And that's where Richard Lewis was so good in, in his dynamic. And he's on this season. So now and I watch the rest of the season. I'm going to really feel low about that. He was on the last, uh, the last episode, by the way, in a golf cart with, uh, with Jeff. Uh, that's a great scene. I love when they argue. shouldn't get a drop. And, and they just tear each other uh, up. So that's a shame that, that he yeah. passed away. But he had had some uh, really bad health problems. And apparently he had a heart attack. Uh, and, and the other thing is, is a totally Parkinson's as well. Uh, several months ago, Tim Wakefield, the knuckleballer, the pitcher of Boston Red Sox, passed away from cancer. At the time, his wife was also terminally ill with cancer, and she passed away this week. They were in their 40s, two people in their 40s passing away. They had three children, and they both died of cancer. This is one of the saddest stories I've ever heard that these young kids have lost both of their parents. And uh, so I, I, you know, those kind of stories really shake me up and, and make me, that's a terrible, terrible story. And so, you know, my thoughts go out to, to the Wakefield family and, the, and the, whoever's going to take care of the children from this point on, uh, really sad and uh, just best of luck uh, for uh, the rest of their, their, those lives. Those poor kids. I hope they, they grow up. Um, uh, well and, and can deal with that uh, all right uh, that'll do it for mike unleashed today uh again thanks to uh tom glavin for joining the show 
Uh, you can uh, reach me at uh, Mike uh, at MikeMiss.com if you want to email me. And also check me out on Twitter at MikeMiss25. And if you're interested in a nice children's book, The Adventures of Shima the Shebas on Amazon.com. Uh, I wrote it. Uh, I had a, a great illustrator named Alex Lee. It's about my dog. And it's about growing up, and it, it translates very well to children growing up. Uh, if you're a three-year-old kid, your parents can read it to you. If you just start to learn to read, maybe at four or five, you can read it yourself. And uh, all uh, 20% of the proceeds go to animal shelters, which is a, uh, a big thing of mine. I, I really appreciate the work that animal shelters do. So if you're interested in that, that would, uh, that would be excellent. You're, you're helping out a great cause. Uh, and our parting shot today, uh, on March 18th, we will present you with a one-on-one interview with Jake Tapper of CNN. He's a local Philly guy. I'm excited to get him. I've been a fan of his for a really long time. And uh, it comes from, in our last podcast, when I mentioned I recommended a TV show that he's doing right now on Sunday nights called The United States of Scandal, where he's going through all these political scandals that we have all lived through. We all remember them. When, when you see the show, you go, oh, I remember that. Uh, you know, the John Edwards scandal, the, the governor of, uh, uh, of Illinois, Blagovich, or whatever the heck his name was, and how these guys hit their downfall. Uh, so it's a really good show. And I happened to mention it, and the CNN uh, PR people got in touch with me and said, are you interested in having Jake on your podcast? And I go, damn right I am. And we'll talk Philly sports and, and other things. So that's coming up. So put that on your calendar for March 18th. That's uh, going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Jake's right. dad, uh, by the way, Jake's dad was my wife's pediatrician. Really? Yeah. That's unbelievable. And her brother and sister. Yeah, I got to ask him about it. We That's talk crazy. About it. Well, I will ask him about it. All right. Um, yeah. Everybody have a great rest of the day. It's uh, The sun's out, but it is chilly. Yeah, I'm actually, I, I was going to play golf Saturday for the first time since I've had my, my knee situation. And it's going to run 80% chance of rain. So, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's going to warm up again next week, but it's like a week of rain, though. Sunday's going to be a nice day. Might be able to get out on Sunday. All right. There you go. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening to the Mike Missnelli podcast. It's brought to us by Bet Rivers. Don't forget to place your bets nightly on Bet Rivers like I do. Even if you know, like a little bit. The good thing about Bet Rivers, you can bet five bucks if you want to, and you're not going to lose your ass. All right. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, all this week dedicated to Steve Fredericks with the snappy clothes. For Darren, I'm Mike. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bissinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.